Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, as we continue in our series, Looking Up When Life is Down. If you don't have a Bible, I'd encourage you to grab one of the black Bibles in front of you. You can find 1 Peter on page 954. So I'm about ready to encourage all of you, or at least it's going to take me a while to get there because my opening point is this. Suffering is a reality of life. Suffering is a reality of life. You will experience suffering. It's not a matter of if, but it's a matter of if, or it's a matter of when and for how long. Now, for some of you that are younger, you may not have, or you may have, but maybe you have not experienced suffering, but the older you get, the greater your chances will be. Suffering is a result of the fall. Going back to Genesis 3, the curse was very clear because of the curse, because of the curse as a result of the fall of man, of of rejecting God's word, sin came into the world. So the question is, when will suffering end? Great question. The Bible tells us in heaven for those that are in Christ. In fact, Revelation 21 and 22 tells us that in heaven there will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, that the former themes have passed away. You see suffering throughout the Old Testament and throughout the New Testament. You just go to the Old Testament patriarchs, the the patriarchs of of Genesis, uh, Abraham, Isaac, Joseph, Jacob, they all suffered. Moses went through tremendous suffering. Ruth and Naomi, you go through the kings and you see tremendous suffering. Even David, a man after God's own heart, suffered. Prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel suffered many unjustly. The New Testament records the disciples after the death of Jesus suffered. Paul, who is in the center of God's will, wrote these words in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 24 through 28. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews, the 40 lashes less one. Remember, he was doing the Lord's work. He was doing the Lord's will. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false, from false brothers, in toil and in hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and in thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Paul, a man in the center of God's will, suffered. And yet, look where his focus was. And apart from many other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches, the churches that he had planted. We know Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12, whoever, uh, all who desire to live a godly life will suffer persecution. And then ultimately, and most importantly, we know Jesus, 
who was without sin, he suffered. He suffered for the sins of mankind. Now, that leaves with the big idea, and that is this. Suffering is a reality of life. Don't waste the opportunities it brings. Some of you are thinking, opportunities? <laughs> what? Suffering brings opportunities. We will all suffer in one way or another. But if you're in Christ, there's opportunities. If you're not in Christ, my encouragement to you, and I pray even after this message, that you will, you will want to just confess your sin, repent, and turn to Christ as Lord and Savior. Let me read this passage. A passage that Martin Luther says is the most obscure passage in the New Testament. Boy, did I have fun this week. Verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Four. It's a conjunction here. It's really important. We're going to see this. For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patient waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So what are some of the opportunities of suffering? Here's the first one. It may seem like kind of a trivial thing, but you experience the reality of life. You, you experience the reality of life. Now, Peter's been speaking in chapter 3, really 2 and 3, about the attitude and the responses of mature believers. The fact that they are to bless, they are to do good, they are to keep their tongue from evil, they are to seek peace. And then he says in verse 13, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? So, listen, if you are doing all that God has called you to do, who's there going to be and you're zealous for that. Who's going to be there to harm you? At least you've not given them a bat in which to hit you. See, how you respond is going to impact how people treat you. The context of this letter is how to live right when things are going wrong. How to bless when reviled. How to look up when life is down. And when you live that way, you've reduced the opportunity for harm. Yet we know that those who desire to live godly will suffer persecution. So 
Peter goes on in verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. I believe that Peter has in mind Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, where Jesus said this, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. What he's saying is that there's times where, like, we're fearful of man. And yes, man can damage the body, but only God can damage the soul. And so he says, fear, he says, fear him who can only uh, destroy soul and body in hell, meaning if you're not in Christ, you need to have a, a, a reverential, uh, certainly a, a fearful fear of, of God. But the reality of life is we will, suffer for, we will suffer persecution even when we obey the law, even when we submit to authorities, even when we respect others, even when we die to self. But because we live in a fallen world, evil exists, we will be persecuted, we will suffer even when we do right. Now, suffering can come in a lot of different forms. It can come in physical pain. Some of you got out of bed this morning and said, yep, that's right. It can be sorrow, sorrow from the death of a loved one or the loss of a loved one. It can be caused by betrayal. My mom, who just passed away at 91 years old, says, you know, getting old is not for sissies. And she's right. The fact is we may suffer even because of our faith. That's the reality. We have to understand that. In fact, Jesus spoke about this in Matthew chapter 5. He said this. He said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He's reminding them, listen, your focus, even in the midst of suffering, doing the right thing, is that you're going to receive heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. And I'm going to show you those rewards in a couple of minutes. A couple of minutes. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, great is your reward in heaven. What is your reward in heaven? <laughs> it's heaven. It's Jesus. It's, it's spending eternity in heaven. And as we're going to see, we receive the crown of life if we endure. The fact is, in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of suffering, be faithful to Christ and you will be blessed. He says this in verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed what is that saying? You will be honored. You will have a privilege. And when Peter says, do not fear them, nor be troubled, he was actually pointing them back to Isaiah chapter 8, verses 12 and 13, where he talks about the fact that God is our sanctuary. He is the one that we need to fear. So don't fear man, but fear God. So often we're more concerned about what man thinks than what God thinks. Peter, once again, is trying to take those who are going through all kinds of persecution and suffering during this time of Nero, and he's putting their eyes back on the Lord. I think it's such an important message for all of us because we can put our eyes everywhere but on the Lord. 
and fear starts to develop and we, we become consumed with our suffering versus becoming consumed with God. We live in a fallen world where suffering's a reality, but if you suffer and endure, you have a greater reward. What is that greater reward? We are told it's the crown of life. We know that when we stand before the Lord, for those that are believers in Christ, that certain crowns will be given to us. One of them is the crown of life. Look what James chapter 1, verse 12 says. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. You'll be standing before the Lord, giving an account of your life. And if you've endured suffering, you've endured persecution, you will receive a crown of life from the Lord. And then guess what? You get to take those crowns. You get to lay them at the feet of the Lord. It's like, I'm not worthy, but this is for you. Look at Revelation chapter 2 says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. What an amazing thing. Listen, some of you are suffering and in your endurance of that suffering, you have a crown of life coming to you. What what an amazing thing. The world may revile you, but God honors you. Now, one of the other things that we know when we suffer, it deepens our need for the Lord, right? We depend upon him in ways maybe we would never have depended upon before. We, we grow closer to him. We, we seek him. We, we draw near. The Bible says if, if we draw near to him, he will draw near to us. It's an opportunity. We're living in the reality of life. And the fact is, we know that op- suffering is an opportunity to experience the reality of life. But secondly, we see this. Second opportunity is you can boldly proclaim Jesus. It gives you an opportunity to boldly proclaim Jesus. And I want you to follow along here. Look at verse 15. But in response to have no fear of them, nor be troubled, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Peter gives us the antidote for fear. Focus on Jesus. He's saying, change your self-focus to focus on the Lord. Don't fear what faithless people fear. He says, stir up your hearts, replace those fears with faith, acknowledge Christ as holy. He says that, but even, he says, but in your hearts, honor Christ as holy. Be reminded that Jesus is holy. He's separate. He's one. He's only. Be reminded of him. And when you do, you're not going to return evil for evil. You're not going to revile when reviled. You're going to bless. And when you do that, you better be ready. Be ready for what? You better be ready to give a reason. A reason for what? For the hope that is in you. Because what happens is people start watching you. They see there's something different in you. And the fact is, when you go through suffering, when you're reviled, you don't revile in return. You have this hope. Not, not, Not a plastic 
cheerleader smile on your face. But there's a deep-seated joy knowing who you are and whose you are. Then what happens is people around you are like, what is different about him? What is different about her? And you better be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in you. Now notice, he says, he says verse 15, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy always. So when should we be ready? Always. Always being prepared. We should be prepared. Are you prepared? Prepared for what? To make a defense. That word defense is where we get, it's, it's the word apologia. It's where we get the word apologetics. What is the reason for the hope that is in you? How do you honor the Lord? What, like, what is it that's different? What's changed in you? I want to know. Because I'm going through hard times and I, I don't have the same hope that you have. Always being ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Look at the opportunity that we have as believers. Listen, we're going to go through hard times. I, I, I've laid that out. I've... It's not the most exciting message in the world. But the excitement is in the opportunities that those afford us if we take advantage of them. If we live out our faith. I've said it many times. Listen, Jesus may not want to take us out of what we're going through, but he's with us in the midst of what we're going through. And that's where our strength is. That's where our power is. People will want to know. Listen, things may be crashing around you, but in your heart, in your soul, honor the Lord as holy and let that determine how you respond. And when you respond, based on that settled hope in your heart, get ready. Because there's going to be a lot of people that want to know what's different. Yet how often do Christians miss the opportunity because when suffering or trials or persecution happen, they act no differently than those that don't know the Lord. And I'm not pointing my finger. I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm just as guilty at times. I have to be reminded that like, if, if, we're going, if we're going through a trial, it's like, the question we can ask is, why me, Lord? But that's the wrong question. The question should be, what do you have for me, Lord? Or even better yet, who do you have for me? How can I, how can I be a, a, a testimony for others around me? Peter knows that when you do good, when, you're going through when you do good, when you're going through trials, that there's a reason. question is, can you make a defense for the hope that is in you? Can you share the gospel? Can, can, you, can you articulate the fact that you were dead in your sins, that, 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 that you were separated from God with no hope, with no hope for eternity? But, but Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, God became a man, came into this world lived a sinless life, a life we couldn't live. He died a sacrificial death on the cross in our place. And he was raised in that by putting my faith and trust in him, I have a hope of eternal life. C can you share that? Now, here's something I do every week. 
I share the truth of the gospel. How people can be saved because I would never want anybody to walk into this building and walk out not knowing what they must do to be saved. How they must turn from their sins and turn to Jesus. That's called repentance. Put their faith in them. For anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But I also say that for the rest of you, so that week after week you're hearing the same message so then you can articulate it yourself. I remember when I first went to church, I was so bothered by the fact that the pastor kept talking about Jesus. It was like, like talk about something else. Three weeks later, Pam and I are down on our knees, confessing our sins, praying for the Lord to save us, and he did. But notice what he says here. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you the reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Now, I said you can boldly proclaim Jesus. Now, boldness is not haughty or ugly or arrogant or defensive. It's not, an, it's not a do-it-all mentality, I mean, a, a, a know-it-all mentality, but it's, it's with gentleness and respect. speaks of humility. It's not attempting to overpower someone by your personality. It's trusting the Holy Spirit to persuade the listener. Why? Verse 16 tells us, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. The fact is, we should do it with gentleness. We should consider other people, just not consider ourselves. And so often we can, like if, you, if you're like me, you can just like, you get frustrated with people. It's like, come on, don't you get it? Like it took 40 years for me to get it. I should have a little bit more patience for other people. The fact is we should be blameless before God. So the only thing that people can slander us for, he says here, is our good behavior. Does this describe you? When things aren't going your way, does this describe you? Does your personal integrity, does your witness before the Lord stay intact? The fact is you will be reviled, you will suffer. The question is, how do you respond? Have any of you blown it recently? Well, here's where God's grace comes in. You don't have to sit in that. Humble yourself. Confess it. Repent of it, meaning turn from it. Seek God's forgiveness. And then work to honor the Lord in your heart and in your actions. The key is to keep a clear conscience and honor God. And then he says, verse 17, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Once again, Peter is speaking to those that are going through really difficult times. And he says, don't let the difficulty overwhelm you. Let the grace of God overwhelm you. And let that be what comes out of you. I can't tell you the number of times I tell people in ministry, your ministry should be an overflow of what God is doing in your heart. But for Christians, 
Your ministry, your witness should be an overflow of what God's doing in your heart. It's not information, it's transformation. So often we get, we get caught up in all this information, like I went through this class and I went through this program and I got this certificate. Has it changed you? Has it impacted you from the inside out? For it is better for suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Is being a Christian easy? No. But that's what we have to depend upon the Holy Spirit, his strength. When you look at verse 17, it's really a summary of what we've already studied. In, in, in chapter 2, verse, verse 15, turn back there. He, he says in chapter 2, verse 15, for this, is the, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. He's kind of continuing this thought. He's, 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 he's helping to, to drive this point home. And then you look again at verse 19 and following of chapter 2. He says, for this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. And now he says in chapter three, verse 17, it's like he's just driving this point home because he's thinking some of you didn't get it. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. You may not keep people from slandering you, but when you do what's right in God's eyes, You start giving them more ammunition. And when you do right in God's eyes in the midst of trials, you have an opportunity to boldly proclaim Jesus. What a great opportunity. Now we can fulfill the great commission. All right. That leads us to the last. We have an opportunity to experience the reality of life. We have an opportunity to boldly proclaim Jesus. And you have an opportunity to learn from Jesus. Now, Peter illustrates and really answers verse 17 for us. He answers the question, why would it be better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil? Well, we now get to verse 18. And this is where Martin Luther, Luther said is more obscure than any other passage in the New Testament, verses 18 through 22. These verses have perplexed Bible scholars for centuries. I read probably eight different commentaries and I got eight different views. Now the view I'm going to give you is the right view, right? <laughs> Wrong. But there's a couple things I want to share. Many of you understand what inductive Bible study is. Inductive Bible study is where you do observation, interpretation, application. Observation, interpretation, application. You take a passage of scripture and you observe it. You're answering, asking and answering a lot of questions. Who wrote it? To whom was it written? What was going on at the time? What's the context? Uh, what were some of the extenuating circumstances, etc.? And then through the observation, then you come up with an interpretation. Now there's many observations. I had a class where 
I mean, we just, we did all these observations and then the, and the, the professor said, nope, there's more. He just, there's more. So based on all the observations, how many interpretations are there of the Bible? One. When God wrote this book, he had one message. When he wrote this passage, he had one message. It's like you were to write a letter to a girlfriend or a boyfriend, and you're telling them something. You're not letting them interpret it five different ways. You want it to be very clear. And so there's, there's, there's many observations. There's one interpretation, and then there's multiple applications. And so the question here is the interpretation. Now, there's a couple of things to keep in mind when you interpret Scripture. And I'm just doing a little excursus here. One is the context of the passage. And that becomes really important here. So one is the context of the passage. Secondly, how does it square with the rest of Scripture? Because Scripture is the best way to interpret Scripture. And Scripture will never contradict itself. It will never contradict itself. Now, we also know Deuteronomy 29, 29 says the secret things belong to the Lord. We are not called to know everything. There's certain things that we will not know until we get to heaven. And I'm okay with that. Now, but I think we can have a better idea of what he's saying here based on the clarity of other passages. The key, though, is that when we approach a passage... That might not be as clear as others, and there's multiple interpretations, or at least views. Let me just put it. There's one interpretation. There's different views of the interpretation. Then we approach it with humility. Unlike some of us who are many times wrong but never in doubt. Anybody got one of those in their family? No, don't raise your hand and don't, don't do one of these. You know, don't, don't look. But we can be many times wrong but never in doubt. So we approach this with humility. The key to this whole section is the gospel. In fact, if you look at verses 18 through 22, you're going to see four words. You're going to see his suffering. You're going to see his death. You're going to see his resurrection. You're going to see his ascension. That becomes the key. In, in interpreting this, interpreting, interpreting this passage. Too many, too many, uh, too many, um, too much. <laughs> I told you it's not easy doing this sometimes. In verse 18, you see that he suffered. In, in the end of verse 18, you see his death. In verse 21, you see his resurrection. Verse 22, you see his ascension. He's gone to heaven. Four elements of Jesus's work. Verse 17, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. And then he says in verse 18, for, there's a conjunction there. He's getting ready to explain it. He's getting ready to illustrate it. And so we see four elements of Jesus' work. We can learn from these. First of all, we see his suffering. We see his suffering. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So you're suffering and doing right. Christ also suffered and did right. 
He's drawing a, a connection between your doing what's right in God's eyes and Christ doing the same. Now, verse 18 is considered one of the shortest and the simplest yet richest summaries of the gospel in the New Testament. Uh, uh, the summary of the, of the cross. We see what's known as penal substitutionary atonement. Penal speaks of, it, it, it's, it speaks of uh, relating to punishment. Substitutionary is, is replacing one for another. Atonement, it's reparation for wrong. So we see, it says, Christ died once for sins. And why is that important? Because in the Old Testament, the sacrificial system, there was continuous sacrifices for sins. Yet Jesus died once, satisfying God's requirement for justice. Penal substitutionary atonement. He Christ one, once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. He is righteous. We were unrighteous. He died for us. He died in our place. Why? That he might bring us to God. What an amazing statement. That's atonement. He, he paid the penalty for our sins. He suffered so we wouldn't. He, 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 he paid for our wrong. Peter is helping us understand the value of suffering by pointing to the suffering of Christ for their salvation. The fact is Christ suffered. It had a purpose. Our suffering will have a purpose. When you suffer, remember, like Jesus is an example for us, we might be an example for others. So God used suffering. He used Jesus' suffering. We don't know how he'll use ours, but we shouldn't waste that opportunity. So second, not only do we see his suffering, but we see his death. The end of verse 18 being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. This is where it gets a little wonky. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patient waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Now, on the cross, Jesus says, it is finished. The telestai. It's done. It's accomplished. Nothing else needs to be done for your salvation other than putting your faith and trust in him. Some people look at this passage and they use it as a way to say, well, Jesus went down into hell and he preached to the spirits in hell, giving them a second chance. Well, no, there is no second chance. We see that in uh, Hebrews 9.27, which says this, and just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that judgment comes, there's no second chance. We only have one chance to embrace Christ here on earth. Once we die, there is no second chance. But also one of the things that we see is a thought that he descended into hell. Now, some of you that maybe have grown up with the Apostles' Creed, it speaks of Jesus descending into hell. The question is, did he? Well, R.C. Sproul has done a pretty exhaustive study on that, and he says, 
The fact that Jesus descended in hell being in the Apostles' Creed wasn't there in the early years, like 400 AD. It wasn't in the original creed. But the fact is, we know that Scripture does not support the fact that Jesus went down into hell when he died. How do we know that? Well, Luke 23, 43 says, when Jesus was on the cross, he had two thieves on either side. And one of them, he said, today you will be with me in paradise. Today you will be with me in paradise. So that doesn't square. So what is this talking about? Well, Peter points to the time of Noah. Remember the time of Noah? It was a glorious time on earth, right? Or not? No, it wasn't at all. I mean, you had, it says, in fact, in, in, let, me, let me just put up chapter, uh, let me put up uh, Genesis 6. It says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it was grieved and it grieved him to his heart. Now, what happened? It says the sons of God saw the women of man, speaking of the spirits, and they intermingled, creating the Nephilim. Kind of an obscure passage also, but it created a great wickedness. And because of the great wickedness, God says he was grieved. And so what did he decide to do to judge the people? What did he, what did he cause? A flood. But 120 years before the flood, what did he do? He told Noah to build something. What was it? An ark. Took him 120 years. Hopefully, it won't take us that long to build the VBS sets. Okay? <laughs> Shameless plug. People were wicked. Now, let me ask you. Noah, who is more righteous than the others, starts building an ark. How do you think the people treated him? Do you think it was with grace and they encouraged him? You can do this, Noah. Or were they reviling him and were they persecuting him? It would have been a horrific time. And God's judgment was the flood. God's judgment was the water. And he built this ark as a place of refuge for those who had enough faith in the message of Christ that was being preached through Noah. The spirits, when he says in verse 18, put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went proclaimed to the spirits in prison. It could be that those spirits were the ones in, in uh, Genesis chapter 6 that were reviling Noah. In which he went proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formally did not obey, here's the point, when God's patient waited in the days of Noah while the ark that was being prepared in which a few, that is eight, were brought safely through water. So we have a better idea of who those spirits were. Are you still with me? Okay, let's keep going here. 
It was God's grace that he called Noah to build the ark. And it was faith that compelled the eight to get into the ark. Like it had never rained before. It's like, who wants to get in this big ark with a bunch of animals? I mean, it sounds like for some of you guys, your college experience. It's like, I'm not going in there. It's okay, little Billy, you'll be fine. So we see his, we see his suffering, we see his death, but then we see his resurrection. Look at verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this now, saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, this becomes, if you think the other passage was wonky, this gets really wonky. See, a comparison is made between salvation in the ark and baptism. Baptism, which we're going to be doing in a couple weeks on Easter, if you've not been baptized, get baptized. Baptism represents what Christ has done for us. That we've died to our old life, that we've been buried and we've been raised again to walk in newness of life. It's an outward demonstration of an inward transformation. It wasn't the water that saved Noah. The water actually spoke of judgment but it was the faith of Noah that saved him. It was the faith, the faith to build the ark, the faith to get into the ark. Peter's not saying here that water saves us or washes away the sins. Notice what he says. He says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. And then he says, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. It's, it's, it's a reminder of what you did when you put your faith and trust in Christ. You were baptized by the Spirit. It doesn't remove dirt. The water is, it's, it's just an outward thing. It speaks of something inward. Water didn't save them. It's a picture of the fact that Jesus is our ark. And that we step into that ark. We leave the, the wickedness behind. We leave the waters of judgment behind. And we now are safe in the ark of Jesus. And we know that because of his resurrection. It was his resurrection that, that, that reminded us that we can have a good conscience. It's our appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 makes this very clear. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It is our faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works that so no one may boast. The fact is, baptism, if we think that baptism saves us, then we're, we're trusting in works. Baptism is a picture of what God has already done in us, that we've died to our old life, we've been raised to walk in newness of life. So when you respond to the gospel by faith, when you publicly profess Christ, your conscience, which has formerly been seared by sin, is now cleansed. You have a good conscience. It's a call to step into the ark. Let me finish this. Finally, we see his ascension. So where's Jesus today? You know, he suffered, he died, he was resurrected, and verse 22 tells us 
who has gone into heaven as at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. When we receive Christ, we are united with him. So as Jesus died, we died. Our old life died. But as Jesus has been resurrected, we've been resurrected. And as Jesus has ascended into heaven, we will be glorified into heaven with him. And so what, what Peter's trying to say, listen, you're going through all of this suffering. You're going through all of these trials. But focus on Christ. Focus on the end game. Focus on the fact that this is not all that it is. That because of the ascension of Christ, one day you will be raised with Christ. And you will be sitting at the right hand of him. You will be in heaven. And as Jesus was vindicated, so you will be vindicated. Noah was saved by faith. We also will be saved by faith. And if we suffer, we need to remain faithful. Let me just end with this. Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so, so great a cloud of witnesses... Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Here it is. Looking unto Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It's like Jesus suffered. The Bible tells us he set his face like a flint to heaven or to Jerusalem. He stepped into the suffering, knowing, looking beyond the suffering, looking beyond the cross to sitting down at the right hand of the Father. And I think that's what Peter's telling us to do here. Look beyond this present suffering. Look beyond to the, your union with Christ, to his suffering, his, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. Fact is, suffering is a reality of life. Don't waste it.